0: Welcome to the panel, RNZ National, Mary Margaret Slack, Communications Manager for Bike Auckland, and Ben Thomas, PR Specialist, with me this afternoon. Don't worry, Wallace, us electronics listeners are well used to be long ignored by RNZ. There (laughs) There are a lot of us. The Days of the Gathering, Destination, Alpine (laughs) Unity, back in the 90s, noughties, were very heady. And to name a few long-running legendary DJs of the prog house scene, John Digweed, Nick Warren, Danny Tnuglia. I know these names. (laughs) These are great DJs. (laughs) Wallace, you should check out Detroit house producer Moody Man's latest album, Taken Away. It's got some great techno vibe to it. I appreciate it. Uh, Correspondents, welcome, 2101. First up on the program... The Prime Minister Jacinda doing has outlined plans for a staggered mass COVID vaccination program for the general population who so far haven't been eligible. That is Group 4. It'll be the largest mass vaccination program in our history. From the end of July, the country will enter a new phase of the program when New Zealand received the bulk of its vaccines. The first age band is 60. Uh, sorry, the first age band is people aged 60 years and over. That starts from July 28. The next band will be 55 and over starting on August 11. And the 35s and over will be from mid-September, while everyone else will follow in age bands from October. Priority, though, is the over 65s. And once the group four rollout begins—that is, most of New Zealand—book my vaccine will be the system used by people to book. So to discuss is Professor Michael Plank, the principal investigator at Te Puna Matatini, Professor Plank kia ora.
1: Ki ora. Wallace. So this, so this vaccine rollout sequence—what do you think? Does it sound acceptable? Uh, yeah I mean, this is following the pattern that many countries um, around the world have used with their their vaccination programs um, moving down the age groups because of course we know that um, older age groups are at much higher risk of um, getting severe uh, disease um, or or needing to go to hospital with covid nineteen.
0: Mm uh Prime Minister says we've landed on age bans because it is the simplest process used overseas, as you say, so age is the best traffic
1: light system uh, yeah, i mean it has the virtue of simplicity. um people know when they're when they're eligible it's very clear um it allows the government to um to, to chase people up and and invite people in when it's their turn to get vaccinated. Um so uh yeah it's it's very clear for everyone how it's going to work.
0: All right. Uh and uh as you know Michael will have a panel with us. Mary and Margaret, do you have a question or a thought?
2: I wonder yeah. do you, there's there's a condition that if you don't want to um if you if you don't get it as soon as you're eligible, you don't become ineligible. You can wait and get it later. What do you think the uptake will be like when each cohort qualifies?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. So there's no uh, there's no time limit. Um, people can can be vaccinated at any time after their age group becomes eligible. Um, I mean, hopefully, and we need to try and make sure the um, the uptake rates are as high as possible. Um, and so it's going to be really important to to get the message out that um, that we need um, everyone and as many people as possible to get vaccinated.
3: Ben. Um... <clears throat> Yeah, I I mean, look, it all it all makes sense, doesn't it? Mm. It's I was a little, I found it a bit chilling when the uh, Dr. Bloomfield described it as uh, the rollout of the um, the vaccine booking program as similar to the way that the contact tracing system was introduced last year. Um, That didn't fill me with a lot of confidence um, in terms of being an iterative system. um, What do you What do you mean? Well, you know, in, in terms of sort of a slow start, rolled out in trials, then getting sort of feedback, apparently even from the Prime Minister. Um, but, I, you know, to my recollection, um, the contact tracing, uh, you know, might not be the best comparison in the sense that I still don't, I don't necessarily think that was still particularly under control even at the beginning of this year uh, right. when it rolled out. Um, you know, we are relying on, on the government to do a good job here. Um, so, you know, let's touch all the wood that we can lay our hands Just on. Just
0: in terms of the, uh, because there has been the worry of some people and some commentators, Professor Plank, what some may see is the sluggish nature
1: of the rollout. What of that? What what thoughts do you have there? Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, what we're going to see is um, <clears throat> increasing uh, deliveries from starting from July, and hopefully that will mean that the pace of the vaccination programme will really start to ramp up. Um, and that's the plan is that it will get faster and faster um, through through the, you know, the months of sort of July through to sort of September and October. So hopefully we'll see the the pace really start to pick up.
0: Right. Now, do you know much so far about this book my vaccine uh, system? So that'll be the system used by people to book. Do we know much about how, you know, how
1: how that works at this stage? yeah it remains to be seen exactly what this looks like and i think they're going to do a um a sort of a show and tell on that next week um but they one thing they did mention today which is good is that it will allow people to book both their appointments um at at once Um, and that's really important because it's it's essential that people go back for their second dose um and one thing we've seen from the data overseas is that actually one dose isn't enough. It's really, really important to go back for that second dose. So making sure both of those appointments are locked in from the start will be really good.
2: Right. And how long will we have to wait from, from the first one till the second one?
1: Mm. I think it's around three weeks, so um, around about a three week gap between those two doses.
0: And you've really sort of uh, hit that home, uh, Michael. The the importance of the second voice, vote. You've written about this, uh, uh, crucially because of these new
1: variants that are coming through. Yeah, that's right. So in the UK, um, earlier in the year, they they went, they sort of adopted this strategy of trying to get everyone to get their first dose, and that's because they were in the middle of an outbreak that they were trying to battle. Um, and it turned out to be quite a you know a, quite a successful strategy. Um, but that was for a, a previous variant, if you like. Um, and one of the, the new variant that they're dealing with at the moment, um, it looks like two doses is still really effective against this delta variant um, but one dose is much less effective mm. so yeah with this new variant that we've seen uh, recently that second dose is absolutely critical yeah professor
0: plank there's been quite a few quite a few uh, practical um, texts coming through about this i'm not quite sure if you're the person to respond to those when we will have A Q&A later on uh, in uh, in july for example uh, I tried to book for an injection online; it didn't work, so I had to telephone. That worked well, but was disappointed that the computer method just seized up. So there are logistics coming through, Michael. Uh, people are sort of a little bit frustrated.
1: Yeah. Um, well, hopefully, this new booking system will um, will resolve some of those teething problems that, that people yeah. have had. Um, yeah.
3: Yep. So we will get someone to talk about that. I've got a really d- dummy question um, because I don't know. Um, once we get the two vaccine shots, um, is 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 that it, or do we have to come back next year as well?
1: Good question. Uh, initially, it's uh, we 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 want to get everyone to have their two two doses, so that's you know the first task. That's the most important thing. Longer term, it is quite likely that we will need to, to have sort of yearly booster shots or something like that, um, much as we do with the flu vaccine. Um, so, yeah, that's that's sort of yet to be determined, um, but it's quite likely that that, um, that is how it will pan out in the long term. All right. Can I just finally just give you one more question, if I could? What if uh, you get the first
0: dose but don't get the second mm-hmm. within the required time frame between 21 and 42 days
1: post first jab? Um yeah, I'm not entirely sure on that. I think, you, I mean, you can still get it, um, yeah. you know, better late than never, I think. Um, but ideally, we want people to be having it within that recommended time frame. Nice to have you on, as always. Well. Professor
0: Michael Plank there, Principal Investigator at Te Punaha Puna Matatini. Thank you. 17 minutes past four, quite a few emails coming through on that COVID vaccine programme. I hope that centres will be set up in small, isolated towns around New Zealand. And we over 65 will not be expected to travel to the main centre, says Donna in Tiro. 17 past four, you're on the panel, RNZ National. Te Whanganui Atara, Wellington is set to make some of its main streets car-free within three years. The Golden Mile Street's Courtney Place... Your Lambton Keys, your manors and Wallace Street. Great streets, aren't they? They'll only be open to buses, cyclists, pedestrians, car parks. They'll be removed. Footpaths widened, providing seventy-five percent more footpath space. The retail sector and many businesses strongly oppose the plan, which is part of the Let's Get Wellington Moving programme. With us to discuss is Simon Arcus, the Chief Executive of the Wellington Chamber of Commerce. Simon Kyoto, welcome to the panel.
4: Kevin and good afternoon. Well,
0: good afternoon so the plan is not set in stone yet there's going to be you know 12 months of design work consultation with the business community and others uh, pre final approval but what do you make of the plan so far
4: well it's a little bit of a familiar song uh, in one sense uh, we have obviously heard uh, a lot for a long time about what the plans might be how they might pan out and um, and effectively our uh, most recent um, announcement has been that there'll be more consultation at the bottom on what to do next. Um, So we've got some concerns and we need some clarity.
2: What are your concerns exactly?
4: A lot of the concerns for business, um, I think for me, fall into a couple of areas. One is that whether we really understand the true impact of some of these designs and uh, and what, what they might have on the city. And two, you know, do we actually um, both in a post-COVID world where retailers have uh, have really hurt, and uh, and also in the sense of what um, what impact what does it, does the council really understand what the impact on retail will will be um, from making some of these changes? Uh, it's all about good livability. So we're not in, you know uh, 100% entirely opposed to this, but it is important to make sure that we actually understand what the impact of these decisions will be. Absolutely.
2: And at the moment.
4: Yeah, sorry. And at the moment, what we've got is high level announcements effectively. All right.
2: The Oregon Transportation Research and Education Consortium found in 2012 that pedestrians and people on bikes um, make more frequent trips than drivers and overall end up spending more. Does that give you confidence in the long term about what this could achieve? What what any study
4: does is add a little bit of good data to our understanding. What we want from the council is an understanding of the true economic impact on business. So our study of over 330 uh, retailers found that 90% of them were really against or certainly felt um, threatened uh, for their business by the idea of these changes. Um, If we're going to have a good future and we're going to make it a good livable city. It's got to be um, in a way that we can understand the full uh, blueprint for the city and uh, and the vision for what might come next.
0: All right, I'll bring you on Ben, uh, but Mary Margaret, what do you think?
2: I really support the idea of streets being for people, not just for cars. Um, I think the one kink that needs to be worked out is making sure that this promotes mobility for people with disabilities. Right now that's not Um, I think been paid enough attention to but this does provide an opportunity to in fact enhance that accessibility and I think ultimately this is a really good move um, in in our step to steer away from vehicle dependence Alright,
0: so you support it. Ben Thomas you
3: got thoughts for Simon? Yeah, Uh, I I lived in Wellington for a while, I mean pretty hard getting a park on any of those main streets currently um, as it is. I mean the, the biggest worry I could see from it is it'd make door to door pickups um, late night on Courtney Place much harder in taxis, um, which actually you know sounds, sounds a little silly, but it 's also because you know some people might not be up to stumbling much further than that, but actually it could be a safety issue with the sort of state that uh, downtown wellington's in right now at late on late nights simon look, I take the point uh,
4: yeah, i think it's very important to uh, i think that 's a really good point i don 't think it 's silly at all Ben to say we 've got to think about um, uh, things like taxis being able to access parts of the the, the city, as well as loading zones going, so you you end up with. Uh, a proposition that you know there, that there might be hours in which uh, deliveries could be made, which would be logistically difficult, but to the point that was made earlier uh, this isn 't a binary discussion in my view it 's not about cars versus bikes or um, or people or mobility versus uh, you know, versus public transport it 's about what is the strategic solution that makes the city livable
0: Well, no wrong? cars. Yeah, <laughs> that's well, what it's that's well, what that's what it's about. I mean, it's quite clear. I mean, the fact of the matter is, with this, uh, I mean, what is it? Uh, the vast majority of two thousand women surveyed, they they back the idea. No cars on <laughs> these golden mile streets. They don't want cars there. That's that's what it comes down to.
4: I think you've got to say, well, I mean, how would you feel about no retailers? And that's, that's, the, that's the point. I don't think it's about, again, being binary. It's about what is the design that makes a livable city for everybody uh, and, and recognising that we are going to have a combination of transport modes, uh, however we cut and dice this. All right. Mary Margaret?
2: Well, I agree that it's not clear cut, but I think the overall goal here is to achieve more vibrancy within the, the, that, that community space. And ultimately, I, I, I can see how that initiative would be good for retailers.
4: Simon? Look, I I, um, I, I guess vibrancy is great. Uh, As I say, certainty has to come with it. And right now we've got a high-level vision. Uh, We're saying let's get a level down and understand the detail. And as I said, it's start the implications for retailers
0: Simon, lovely to have you on the program. Appreciate uh, you being with us. Uh Thank is Simon, you. Simon Arcus, yeah, the Chief Executive of the Wellington Chamber of Commerce. A bit of a response on this. Uh, Wallace, well, Wallace, I'm a regular visitor to Wellington, but I'm permanently in a wheelchair. Normally parking Grey Street, but it looks as if my shopping days are over. What do you think of that?
2: Well, I certainly hope that that's paid attention to in the consultation process. Mm.
0: Uh,
2: and... Terms of both Wellington and Auckland, angst over
0: closing main shopping streets to cars. Look at Christchurch, which has been like that for years, and it really does work. Um, Cambridge in England has had a similar system for years. A really busy town, streets full of people, loved the shopping there. Another one here, as a frequent business traveller to Wellington, and never a user of cars downtown, and as a frequent purchaser from Central City Retail, the idea of walk and Wellington is highly attractive and makes sense. I never use suburban shopping there. It makes the shopping concept seem more like uh, a destination. But if if this is not a problem, Mary Margaret, why do you always get, including here in um, in Auckland, so for example, let's take an example, Westland, right, Greylyn, uh, you take a couple of car parks out from the front shop, they're up in arms. They says it directly affects their business. So if there isn't a correlation to the car parks outside your retail, why the complaints? Why is it? Why is it such a big issue? I think it must be a big issue.
2: There is that an, an article came out by the Guardian yesterday about how car dependency operates in Auckland, and I think that because we are used to seeing car as freedom, car as the main point of access to somewhere, we inextricably associated with access to shopping, but what we found is vehicle dependence harms everyone ultimately. We have more congestion, it makes it harder for all of us to get around.
0: Ultimately, but I just want to pick up some nuts from Harvest Whole Foods, you know, and I've only got 20 minutes to do it because of the kids that are in the back of the car. I don't want ultimately, I want now, and I want the car
2: park outside of that shop. But you could easily ride your bike there.
3: Ben? Hard to leave the kids unattended on the bike.
2: I mean, a cargo <laughs> bike the is the a car. great solution crank to
3: that. <laughs> 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 Duck in for 10 minutes.
2: <laughs> ben. But not having a car park right outside doesn't stop you being able to drive there. You can still park nearby.
3: Sure yeah, and that 's why I think you know with Wellington you know the, the the issue is I think more more in the late nights where those side streets you know in recent years have become a little bit iffy and the sort of nexus of a few more problems um, i, I don 't see that you know walking a walking um, a, a block in um, you know to sample the delights of Courtney place or Cuba street would would deter right. that many people
0: okay All right, twenty six past four you 're on the panel. Are NZ National. Now, a free hangi, cauliflower and chipotle tacos, a Friday hangi, rather, cauliflower and chipotle tacos, and even a hummus and salad wrap were among the 80 dishes rejected for not being healthy enough in the government's free school lunches programme, writes Claire Trivet for the New Zealand Herald. There are strict guidelines to ensure those lunches are healthy. National Party Education Spokesman Paul Goldsmith has asked if the focus on health has come at the price of palatability for children. Quoting, obviously we want the meals to be healthy, but you also want them to be eaten. So zucchini and corn fritters are a no-no also, which is a shame because um, that sounds very tasty. Ben Thomas, you first. What do you make of this? The yeah, politicisation the... of the government free lunch programme.
3: Well, the, this whole, well, the government free lunch programme is a, it's political. Right, mm-hmm. of course it is. It's it's feeding you can't hungry. No,
0: it's feeding hungry children, Ben. and, First
3: and it's, it's politicised all over the world, right? You know, in America, that's why you know ketchup was classified as a vegetable because of <laughs> Heinz lobbyists, right? And so, so ketchup with your fries in the school lunches counted as one serving I of heard vegetables of this. for kids. Um, you know, and, and this issue of nutrition and rating foods has always been very fraught, mm. right? You know, we've seen it with, you know, recently I think it was the fruit juices. You know, do they get a pass for being healthy because they've got a little bit of fibre and they're naturally sourced? Or do you count, you know, they've got sort of 10 spoonfuls of sugar in them? Um, you know, hangi, if it's if it's got some sort of fatty mutton in it, ugh, Extremely delicious, but that might count. That might start to offset some of the delicious steamed pumpkin and kumara. So you, you know, I I tend to think that you, you trust the schools on this. Mm-hmm. Um, schools should be able to decide. Uh, you know, the sorts of food that they're giving their kids. Okay. The, the, the community and the schools can decide that together. And you know, we probably don't need to helicopter in the Ministry of Health to start doing tests. All right, very
2: Well, yeah, I think many reported that on the issue of whether or not. Was still palatable to children. Once the menus were sort of um, fiddled with a little bit to make sure that it suited to the children, they did. The uptake was better, but yeah. I was really surprised that cauliflower tacos weren't considered healthy. A lot of those things right. I would consider really healthy. Hummus wraps as well. Hummus wraps. What's the What's the issue with that?
0: Uh, quoting. Uh, Paul Goldsmith, my parents wouldn't have passed the grade with Marmite and chip sammys oh, uh, <laughs> or, or on a bad day, Marmite and lettuce, very bad day. Um, I mean, does, 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 Paul, does National's Paul Goldsmith have a point, Mary Margaret?
2: Oh, I mean, I think so. I think it's a valid concern to make sure that the money is being spent right, but I think ultimately <clears throat> the, the, if you're providing, it matters that we're providing food to children. It matters that we roll out this program, and I think that, but ultimately, most of the food is going to get eaten. Mm, so it's okay. a good thing Around overall. Around
0: the panel, do you both support, Ben, is it important that there is a national food standard across
3: schools? Well, yeah, I, I'm actually not too sure about that in the sense that, you know, what we think we know about nutrition changes from year yeah. to year and generation to generation. So, you know, I, I'm 42 <laughs> now or whatever, and I've lived through about three cycles of stay away from fats and only have carbohydrates, and now we're back into stay away from carbohydrates and have lots of fats. And so I, I don't think we should be getting too didactic about it. I okay. agree. Um, you know, if, if you're using nat- natural-ish You know, if they're colours that appear in nature, you can probably give it to kids. I think
2: it's pretty easy to tick the basic boxes of nutrition and to get into the nitty gritty Mm. can actually be quite a triggering space for some people. Okay,
0: all right. Uh, What have we got here? Uh, My kids are at Decile 3 receiving free lunches. Honestly healthy, wholesome and the kids are into it, especially the hungry ones. Um, uh, Another one here is I was force fed mashed swede at school until I reached
3: but it was but it was good for me. Uh, was that part of a government program? Or was that just, <laughs> just a thing that happened? <laughs> good question.
0: Can we do can we have a follow-up text on that? Was that part of a government program? Um, Chris says there are so few car parks on the Golden Mile now, none on Willis Manors, few on El- Lambton Key and CP. Courtney Plays, how many shops have dedicated car parks outside their shops? Remember when no smoking and bars were introduced? It would destroy trade. Did it? No. There you go. Says Chris.
2: And the article that I read from RNZ this morning said that only 3% of the people shopping in the Golden Mile area have parked there.
0: Mm. <laughs> yes, 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 indeed. I read that too. Uh And, uh yes, a uh, lo- lot of responses right out that. Wellington should follow Perth. The Hay Street and Murray Street malls are the centre of Perth retailing. They are brilliant. The centre of activity with wall-to-wall people. Retailers queue to operate with no vacancies. Lambton Key would be ideal. Street cafes, buskers. We loved our 20 years in Perth, says Graham.